Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Raj Parr. It's June 26th, 2023. We're at the Portland Wine Company in Portland. And special thanks to Matt and Angie for letting us use their space tonight. We really appreciate it. And Raj, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate this. Uh, first question to get things rolling is why wine? Uh, by coincidence, I was uh, in culinary school in New York and and uh, I was just in a, in a wine 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 class and I was like, wow, this is something I love and this is kind of weird. I've never, didn't drink much wine before that and a little bit in England, my uncle, but I was, you know, I was just, at the time I was just 22, so I didn't really, and I was, I grew up in India, so I wasn't exposed to wine and just got kind of curious and and just asked questions and, and just kept getting curious until today, it's the same. So let's talk about life before wine a little bit. You mentioned growing up in India. Tell us about kind of life before you came here. Yeah, just a really close-knit family with my uh, my parents, my sister, grandparents, cousins, really. And and food was the center of uh, a lot of the time and talk about food and, and used to spend a lot of time in the kitchen with my mother, my grandmother, and, and learn to cook and always, you know, love food, and and that's how a lot of things, you know, got me interested in food, and then I'm, I had a family, my cousins in, in New Delhi had a restaurant, and so every time I went on vacation, I spent a lot of time in the restaurant, and then, you know, when I was young, I was like, I want to open my own restaurant, I want to be a chef, and that was like, when I was like eight or 10 years old, so that was, that's how it started, I was just like, got curious. And then just kind of uh, grew up in Calcutta. Then I was 18. I went to a hotel management school in the south of India. There was the only one kind of bachelor's program in hotel management. It was run by the Sheridan Group. Uh, and uh, yeah, did that for three years, graduated, and then uh, worked a few months in India. Then I moved to, uh, to New York, upstate New York, to the culinary school in Hyde Park. And at that point, the plan was still to be a chef? Yeah, I was, you know, I, I had no idea what culinary school is all about. Uh, I had cooked in India, I'd worked in the restaurant where the, where the school was, so I had no idea what the, when I came to, to New York, I had never like seen all the ingredients and this is in the mid 90s and it just got really like, overwhelmed with there so much and just spend my time just studying and reading and and uh, and just did that and then towards the second year we had a wine class and that got me really interested and you know um, never having really drank a lot of wine or drank any alcohol I was uh, eye-opening to see the flavors and just uh, got me interested I did really well in the class I taught my class in wine and that uh, I got a small scholarship for that, and and that kind of kind of hooked me on to, to learn more. And and then I, I was, before I graduated, I uh, 
did some research and and uh, and heard about Larry Stone and uh, wrote him a letter. Um, got a response back and I got a, a interview. Uh, so I went there. I didn't meet him. I met one of the managers and and I bought a one-way ticket. I borrowed money. Bought a one-way one-way ticket and. And she's like, I don't have a job for you, but I can for sommelier because Larry Stone's here. He has no assistant. He works alone, and you can start as a busboy or a food runner. And, and that was in San Francisco. That was San Francisco at Rubicon restaurant, and I was like, yeah, that sounds good plan because I have no way to go back, and I got no money to go back, so I'm just going to start anywhere. And I start, you know, working in the restaurant, and then a few weeks into it, I met Larry and. You know, just come and help him on his, on my, uh, you know, like I used to work a normal shift and then I used to come on my own time and help him move boxes or bin wines or whatever. And then uh, just started, you know, learning from him and, and like five months later he made me his assistant and uh, get, got me a, got, uh, helped me get a visa to stay in the country because I was going to go back in six months. And, uh, and then I worked with him for three years, and uh, and you know I asked his permission. I was like, I think I've learned enough here, and I have another job opportunity, and and he gave permission to leave, and so then I then I started off another restaurant with uh, with the chef in San Francisco, and the timing just worked. It was like the beginning of the dot com, beginning of. Uh, you know, and, and I was young and thirsty, and, and the, the chef was great, the restaurant, and just kind of, the restaurant took off. It was very small, but, you know, made it, made it into a uh, pretty focused French wine, a modern French restaurant, so focusing on mostly French wine. It was a big list of uh, Burgundy, for the most part, and um, yeah, they worked there for three years and kind of, that restaurant got lots of accolades, and you know it was still the time there were not that many young sommeliers out there. There was still, you know, now of course you see a lot, but back in the '90s it was still like you know very few. And San Francisco was San Francisco, and New York were the two big cities, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, just kind of did that for three years, and then the restaurant kind of went through a transition and. The chef changed and stuff, and and then I uh, started working with uh, Chef Michael Mina, 2002, and then I worked with him. I was wine director all the way from then to. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I finally kind of uh, stopped consulting with him in during the pandemic, I think, because there was. You know, so that was a long, that was like from 02 till 2020. So I only had three jobs in my life. <laughs> so that just, yeah, and the, with Michael. And then, uh, and yeah, in the middle, of course, the, the wine side is different, but this is my, that was my restaurant. Mm -hmm. I, I had a chance to open my own restaurant in San Francisco, Colorado in 74. Uh, very much focused on Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay, so it was a big list of uh, 
West Burgundy and Oregon and California. That was that was the focus. Uh, it was a hub. Uh, the, back then, Burgundy was not as expensive as it is now. It was kind of easy to get, and you can. So it was really a fun hub for for people to come work and hang out. It was very casual. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that was the restaurant. That was my restaurant career till then. In a little nutshell, there, no, no big deal. I'm gonna back up for a second. I know you mentioned that your first first time having wine, you were in was in when you were in London. I'm curious. I'm curious, curious about your, your your initial introduction to wine. Yeah, you know, the, it was my uncle lived in lived there, and he drank wine every night. And so when I went there, I was what first time when there was 20, and you know, I I had wine with him, and you know, he mostly drank Bordeaux, and and when we used to go out sometimes, then he would you know order a nice bottle of champagne, and so I don't remember any of the names, but I remember I was always intrigued by by the flavors because I was you know as a kid growing up in India you don't really drink you don't drink wine but you you know eat grapes like just and you're like how can grapes pr produce something so profound because there's nothing special in a grape if, if you have berries from a Grand Cru vineyard in a Burgundy or a vineyard anywhere in the world they don't taste like you know some people say oh yeah grapes taste I can tell the difference it, it is the grapes. So I was always like intrigued in how it could produce something so profound and and what was amazing of you know I'm a history buff, so how like in in the world history how wine has played such an important part in in culture and in in uh, of course religion and you know it's 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 such an old and then you know also in my life if I see all my friends I've made so many people I've met in the, in the wine business or in the wine world or in the restaurant or whatever. It's, it's, it's a connector. It it's really is something that connects humans, uh, the experiences, you know, the stories that you might not remember um, the occasion exactly, but if you think of the wine you had on the occasion, you know, let's celebrate today because this happened. It's, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a global thing. It's not something, uh, you know, everyone does that. It's, it's, you know, everybody wants to have a great champagne when they have, give birth or they celebrate for a promotion. So it's, it's, wine is a connector thing. So that got me really intrigued. At what point in your, you, you obviously you mentioned kind of on, on, road to be, on the road to becoming a chef and then you took a wine class and got intrigued. So what point in your, did you kind of brain switch from like, culinary side to, to focusing entirely on wine, or mostly on wine? Oh, yeah, the focus changed right um, when I did really well in that wine class. It was the, towards the end of my, my time at, at the culinary school in, in New York, and, and I, I did really well, and my instructor's like, you have a really good palate, you know, uh, you should consider doing something in wine. And when he told me that, I'm like, well, right, that, that could be interesting. And you know, if, if I have, because I had a six month visa to live in the US before I went back. So, so I'm like, I might as well go and learn about wine. If I have to go back in six months, I probably won't learn about wine. And I just didn't know that how deeply I fell in love with wine when I was in Rubicon with Larry for six months. Because if Larry hadn't sponsored me, I would go right back. I, would, uh, you know, I couldn't have stayed. So. It kind of, um, yeah, because of him, I'm, you know, I'm still here. Otherwise, I would have 
my back, yeah. So you said you, you kind of did some research and discovered Larry Stone as a name and, and reached out to him. Tell me about your initial impressions of Rubicon and, and of meeting Larry the first, first time. Oh, it was overwhelming. It was, it was, it was like, you meet, you know, it, you know, at that time in 96, he was the top someone in, in North America, the world, you know, and you go there and everyone comes to see him and all the top producers and it's like, come down if you just come to see, like, you know, and it was like it, unanimous. Everybody was like, just looking at Larry and all, and it was like, you know, at the time he was, I mean, his entire career, he was on top. There was like, you know, you would reference him as if like, you know, he's everybody. And his peers, the producers, everybody. And and it was humbling to kind of, uh, you know, uh, work with him because he was so giving, you know, as, his, as a teacher, um, and he was very strict, very strict. Uh, you, you would, yeah, you would have to stay on path. If you did something which wasn't, wasn't the way he said it, it would, you would hear from him. But the information, because also something which today people don't realize is there was no Google then. It wasn't like you could just like look up how the wine was made, what the soil is. There was no information. You either ask someone who knows it, who's been there, seen this, or you go to a library and buy a book or read a book or photocopies and pages. So it was, it was for me, uh, who was, I was thirsty and I, was, I only studied wine, read books, and go to vineyards in Napa and Sonoma every weekend. He was the only person I could ask questions. So it was, he molded me in, 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 in a way that, that like the entire, you know, my entire existence in wine is what he taught me in those, in those three years. So it was, uh, yeah, I mean, today it's different. Today you can, there's, you know, you have social media, you can see a photo of a vineyard in like five seconds. How did your work with him evolve and progress in the three years you spent there? What, did, what were you doing by the end? Uh, by the end, you know, I think after six months, I started working the floor. Uh, you know, I, you know, by the end of it, you know, he allowed me to like, you know, buy a few things. But I was like, you know, a student, so I, would, I was not going to take my take my responsibility and be like, you know, you know, he he did most of the buying. I would taste with him, and he would, you know, just to be around him and watch him. That's all. I was just learning from him and. And uh, but the best the best years were after that, because when I left, um, you know, I mean, I'll never forget the night, the last service. He invited so many people to come for dinner at my last service, and then uh, um, he uh, blind tasted me on a wine, and he said, "If you can guess this wine, then you can leave. If you can't guess it, you gotta stay." You know, and I was like, and he. It was a wine from like the Val d'Aosta. It was like the most rare, crazy wine. Of course, I didn't get it, and that was it. Was a, it was amazing? But the, but the, really, the the great years. I mean, even today, I just saw him today. Um, he was always there. He was. All, I, I used to go and uh, taste with him. You know, after I finished service at 
fifth floor. We were like, yeah. So you know, the, the relationship just kept getting stronger. It wasn't, you know, there was never like, you know, even now I try to call him at least uh, once, once a month, if not sooner. So you know, it's it's uh, uh, that mentor relationship is is uh, it's more than that. It's 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 he's like the family. You know, so. So from there, you mentioned another another kind of stop before you met Michael Mina. Tell me about how that partnership developed with, with Michael Mina. Yeah, he uh, when I was working on the fifth floor, and he was best friends with the chef at the fifth floor, and he used to come to the restaurant, and and he always told me he's like, "How come you sell so much wine here? Like what? Like I'm like I don't know. It's just that's you know, it just he's like hey." You have to work together because, you know, and he was very curious and and I'm like, I'm here and, you know, one day maybe. And then, then when kind of things kind of, when the chef left from the restaurant, you know, then I, then I started talking to him and after a year I started working with him. But it was, it was, uh, I think he was in like, he had, I think at the time he had like four or five restaurants, but he never like, uh, I told him, I said, you don't focus on wine, you know. Wine is an investment of time, energy, and money, and you have to, uh, you know, use that uh, to your advantage. It's not just that; uh, it's not an investment of either one, all three. And you know, uh, he's oh, I, I want you to come work with me. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, but, but, you know, I'll tell you how I am. I. I work in in a, in, a, in a collaborative manner. So you know, when I'm when if you want to create the greatest dishes with food and wine, then you know the food and wine both have to kind of come together. So over our, our working experience, and and he's one of the few chefs who would tweak a dish for the wine. If you tell them this, um, we are you know pouring this pouring this wine with this dish or special menu, and you know remove this component from the dish. Most chefs would say, no way. And he would change it. He would change the dish, and he would really kind of, you know, uh, he, you know, he changed all his, all the wine he used for his reductions. I told him what wine to buy for that. You know, everything was very, you know, uh, and I was like, that's like, you know, and, and I think that, um, you know, I, I was his wine director for from, the, from that now, and now the, Jeremy Shankar is a wine director who worked with me for many years, and and he's trained in the same way, you know. So it's 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 to put food and wine together. Uh, it's not a ego thing. It's for the guests, you know. And if you if you have a serious wine program, uh, the cooking has to work with that food, and the wine is they're, they're one, the food and wine. Tell me about developing that skill. Obviously, working with Larry would be a, would be a quick crash course in it. But developing the skill and the palate to pair in that way, and to to understand what's missing or what's extra in a food to that to that extent. A good question. That it's for, it's by cooking. It's like if you want to be a great sommelier or a winemaker, this is the same skill set is to refine your palate, and that comes from cooking. Because when you're cooking. You know, we all make mistakes overcooking, undercooking, over seasoning, and everyone has done that. Uh, but to kind of know what the balance is. It's the same thing with winemaking, the same thing with food and wine pairing. 
it's the same thing um, with uh, with you know service and you know it's all kind of comes down to really what you know how you balance it all. So I think my cooking helped, my cooking experience helped. My uh, like I traveled a lot, you know, for living in India, also around because there's so many different flavors all around India and traveling and traveling to uh, other Asian countries and Europe exposed to different things. Uh, I think I think understanding flavor profile and balance that really kind of helped with the with the food and wine and keep trying. It's like you know because uh, the answers are not always what 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 the classics are. You know you could you you pair. There was a dish I remember um, Michael had. He had a, a miso glazed fish. You know and had like. I think it had, you know, miso is a hard, hard to pair wine. It had like mushroom and a lot of flavors that don't, wouldn't work with most wines. I, I, I probably had a hundred different wines before I found the perfect wine. Like you kept tasting it like, and it was, you know, it took me like weeks to, to get the right wine. Cause if you're if in a restaurant and you're doing like a pairing and that's one of the dishes, I mean, you have to find the perfect, there's, there's a wine, you know, and also, the, the way the menu is laid out, you know, you alternate different wines and how your palate is, sometimes you will change the order of the dish or the, of the, or the wine, it's, yeah. How long did it take you to feel confident making those kinds of decisions? Yeah, it was quick. I'm very intuitive. I don't, I kind of, if I have to work at something all day, every day, I will figure it out. and. It was uh, just, you know, I, you know, I rely on my gut a lot. Like, just intuition is everything I've done in my life. I've, I, I didn't go to, uh, I didn't go to someone here school. I didn't go to winemaking school. I didn't go to farming school. I didn't, I didn't take, you know, it was, it was, you learn from, from talking to people, reading, and then you try it yourself. Make your own mistakes and they figure it out. And you mentioned RN74, the chance to start that. So tell me about building something like that from scratch. What was the dream for you and, and how did you go about executing it? Um, yeah, it was, I was uh, <clears throat> early on, you know, many people who get into wine first might start with like, you know, whatever, Cabernet or something. I was lucky I straight went to Pinot Noir, I straight went to Burgundy. Uh, first place I went in the wine region of the world was Burgundy. Uh, met the best producers, became friends. So, and then, you know, Burgundy was still kind of like, you know, it was, it was out there. You could, you could, you know, it wasn't, wasn't as expensive as it was now. It wasn't, it was always rare. And I became friends with people and, and started asking questions. And so when I went to open a restaurant, I'm like, my restaurant has to be homage to Burgundy because Burgundy has taught me everything about wine. And uh, and I was just, you know, I'm still a sucker for great Pinot Noir, of course, and Chardonnay. So it was, it's something that kind of was, so the restaurant I want to open, that was my dream restaurant. I think I, it was in 2000 when I uh, registered the website. Uh, and we opened the restaurant in 2009. And um, yeah, it was, uh, 
it was the most amazing experience to open the restaurant and to work with uh, with uh, this amazing group of people. It was like, you know, to tell a chef that our focus is wine and and your cooking has to support the wine list. It's that's not something most people would do. You know, it was it was because you go to a restaurant to eat. You know, I mean, hey, I said no, we're gonna. People are coming because they're gonna love the wine list, and your food has to match that wine list. So it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a amazing experience. It was uh, really uh, deep in the in the economic crash. Uh, I remember the day we opened. Uh, we didn't know what time we were gonna open. Four o'clock or six o'clock, and we we're like, no one's gonna come anyway. It's just a random day in April, and. And we opened the door at like five. There were like 50 people in line outside ready to come in. I'm like, all right, there's something. Uh, and the restaurant was busy from day one. And, and uh, towards the end, the, the, the problem was that we could not keep the wines in stock because the, the, to, re, to, to restock the wines you ran out of, you had to pay more than what the wine list prices were. So, you know. It, it, and then Burgundy got more, more popular and more popular, and it deserves to be. And it just kind of eventually uh, was just hard to replace these bottles, but there's so many great bottles were open there, and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty special. With the sort of depth of your wine knowledge at that point, how did you go about creating a list? What did you want the list to convey? Um, the, I wanted the list to be a balance between like the basic everyday drinking wine and the collectible wine. And we had a very uh, great opportunity. We, we partnered with a dear friend, Wolf Jaeger. He, he opened his entire wine cellar to us. Um, so we had maybe 200 references of just Bourgogne Rouge from the 60s to current vintages. We had collectibles of village wines. I wanted to have, you can drink a village wine, you can drink Burgundy back then for $50, $60 a bottle. Uh, so we had a lot of wines under $100, a lot. And then of course a lot of collectibles. So if somebody doesn't know what Burgundy, they can come in there and, and have a, you know, a young Bourgogne Rouge from a top producer. And, and you can come in there and, you know, have and we, and we had like, what, 50 wines with a glass. We had a enomatic machine. We had everything from Beaujolais to DRC by the glass the whole time. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a lot of the producers came there. We did many events there. It was open lunch and dinner. Uh, we closed on uh, Saturday uh, lunches. We open five lunches, seven dinners. and. It was fun, it was casual, it was like, you know, you can walk in and have a glass or you can sit there and spend six hours. And I told everyone that you're gonna wear only jeans, no tablecloth, and uh, uh, just have fun. So I'm curious, as your 
as your kind of profile was was rising as as a psalm there and, and being in San Francisco. Uh, I'm curious how that sort of went for you, going going from being Larry Stone's assistant to being someone now opening their own restaurant. How did that feel to you? How did you kind of did you enjoy the limelight? Was it was it was it a fun place to be? Yeah, it was it was really a fun place to be for sure. But but uh, you know you could never forget that you're still in service for others because it was it was you know so I. I was there, and I lived above the restaurant, so I was there all day. I was there for lunch and dinner. It was something, you know, uh, really important to be there, and kind of because, uh, you know, it, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't like I worked once a week. I worked, you know, probably six to eight services a week, uh, lunch and dinner, and uh, and it was important. I think it was it was a lot of fun because it was. A lot of young people came. A lot of young sommeliers who, who kind of grew from there and and uh, did other things. A lot of producers came. Um, yeah, it was it was a really fun time to be in San Francisco, and it was uh, yeah. How did your sort of hospitality philosophy evolve, and how would you now sort of define the hospitality you were trying to give? Yeah, I think hospitality in the beginning was, you know, more f more focus on wine. And then when you kind of have your own restaurant, of course, I kind of oversaw the wine list and kind of structured it. But we had a whole team. We had four sommeliers working the floor. Um, and, you know, I, we had a head sommelier who was, you know, so I let others kind of, you know, take charge and and buy wine. And, and um, yeah, it was it was... You know, I spent more time uh, seating guests or bussing tables and that kind of stuff. That was definitely, it wasn't about just um, serving wine, because in the end, the hospitality is the most important part. Wine is one part of it. The whole, the whole service and, you know, welcoming and, and really kind of, you know, being someone who can show people gratitude and, and, and serve them at the highest level while being casual. Which is always challenging sometimes. So, at what point in the process did the idea of making wine start to appeal to you? You know, it was a parallel journey. I, uh, I think, in maybe in two thousand and three, a dear friend of mine, we were, we were drinking a, a an old Northern Rhone wine. Uh, and and he had just started making wine. I said, you know, how come we can't make wine like this in in California? Oh, you can't do a whole cluster in Syrah in California. It's like, I'm like, why not? It doesn't work. So I'm like, all right, that sounds, you know, it doesn't sound like I'm not convinced. So I started looking. It was, this was in like. Spring of '03, I started looking for a vineyard. I said, "I gotta find a vineyard. I'm gonna make a little bit of Syrah." And so then, that's how it started. And then I found a vineyard in in Santa Barbara County. And then I, you know, I was really good friends with Jim Clendenin. And um, and so I said, "Jim, we need a Chardonnay. Come from make Syrah. Just need a few barrels of each, and just for fun, just to learn." And and so that's how I started. Um, and I started a par selection, a small kind of first vintage was 
think two barrels of Syrah and two barrels of Chardonnay in 04, and then repeated in 05. And then I, in the same year in 04, I met Sashi, my partner Sashi Mormon, and he came to show me his own wine. He made Syrah, but a very different style of Syrah. Um, and, and then um, in 2006, I realized I have or four or five, I'm gonna make all six. I'm like, you know, I've, you know, this is like all my savings. I'm, I, don't, I gotta sell this wine somehow. And and I uh, and I met uh, Mark Tarloff, and uh, became friends. And I said, Mark, you know, we gotta, I need to make make wine somewhere, you know, and I need to sell this wine. And Mark said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah don't worry, we figured it out with Sashi because Sashi was a winemaker for the California. It was called Evening Land at the time in California also, and he had just he was just in the process of, pro of purchasing Seven Springs, and and so then in '07 I made the the vintage with Sashi in Lompoc, and then also made a little bit of Seven Springs here in Oregon with uh, Dominique and. And I think Christophe at the time, and I've, I knew Dominique for many years before that. Um, so did 07, 08, Seven Springs under par selection. And I did uh, the Syrah, which I made till 08. And then in that whole process, I kind of, you know, and, and this whole process was, like, I wouldn't say I made the wine like myself, but I was like working with, you know, with. With Dominique and Christoph here, and working with Sashi and uh, Jim Clendenin and Chad Melville, and uh, people all helping, and and but I wanted to make wine in a certain style, in a certain way, and they kind of like did it in that style. And I was I was there for the pick, and I was there, you know, as often as I could, because four-hour drive from San Francisco, so New Harvest has come down you know, drive down back and forth uh, every other day, work service, come back, uh, next day, go back, work service. Um, and, you know, it, it was an amazing experience because that kind of, I realized that, that how, how much, you know, how much work it is really to kind of get, get the whole thing from making it, bottling it, the elevage, all of it. Mm -hmm. So then, then, uh, that's when kind of in 2009, me and Sashi uh, started the first, first winery together, Sandi, and, and focusing on Chardonnay. And, and then Domaine de la Côte was a part of Evening Land that we kind of took from Evening Land and kind of made it, made it ours as Domaine de la Côte. And then the investors, our investors, our main partner, in the in the winery, he uh, off, you know, offered. You can, you know, you, would you like to make wine from Seven Springs? And it was a, you know, it was a big decision because it was uh, such a. Uh, I mean, it was important, and we knew we didn't live here, and there was a lot of like, you know, uh, and at the time, Evening Land was making wine in Sonoma and. Buying grapes and making a lot of wine, and 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 we kind of just said, oh, you know, we only want to make wine from Seven Springs. 
we have to like take all the other things away and only seven springs because uh, the vineyard is has had a such a um, checkered past of different things and and we have to kind of preserve the vineyard as it is uh, so the, we'll only do it if we are allowed to only make wine from the state and and it'll be you know at least 10 to 20 years till we kind of reconstruct the whole place as as uh, as it is today everything is being replanted or is planned replanted and planting more trees and 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 uh, you know setting it up for another generation of, of work so so all of that and then doing the Lakot was was also which was Sashi's uh, brainchild he founded he kind of he it's he planted it and I assisted of course with the whole process but something that that it was really a vision his vision to plant it the way it's planted and, and uh, yeah it's pretty interesting to see both those parallel places very different because people always ask us oh yeah the wines made the same way no they're completely different different way they made the day as they should be because it's two different places uh, and that's what makes Pinot Noir so interesting Tell me about your first production experience. Obviously, you had a, a, a fair amount of wine knowledge at that point, but you hadn't made wine before. What what was the process like, and, and what, what did you enjoy about it? Uh, so first of all, I learned about winemaking from uh, my friends in Burgundy and Rhone. Uh, I'm really close friends with Jean Richard, for example, in Northern Rhone, and Thierry Allemand, and, and uh, with lots of friends in Burgundy. So. So I, I, in my mind, was like, you know, I want to make a wine like that whole cluster, and, and uh, you know, no, no added anything. Uh, Thierry Allemand has been a huge impact in my, in my life, you know. So making wine uh, from organic grapes, uh, making wine without any additives, and low to no sulfur. That was something which, uh, early on, from the very first vintage, that was important to me. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and yeah, it was. But you know, that's not the norm, and that's not. Uh, but that's the way I've always made the wine. From my very first no sulfur wine was in 06 with the Cornas, my Mirasashi in 07, and repeated that and made that. So you know, it was. It was a slow process because I I I don't have a, a winemaking background, so I'm not. I don't you know. Uh, chemistry of, of wine. It took me a while to kind of learn that and where you can do whole cluster, where you can't, and how it affects the wine and the tannins and the pH and all these things. It took me a while to learn that, but uh, that was all knowledge by by doing it and and going to the extreme of making the mistakes and and you know uh, making all the Chardonnay by completely oxidizing the juice. Uh, you know, leaving the tanks open and, you know, when you're barreling down Chardonnay, which looks like iced tea, it's kind of like, you're like, hmm, it, it worked, but it was like, at the time, it was like, you're crazy. I'm like, this is the way I think it's going to work. And so we've stuck with the same ideas from, from the beginning. And yeah, it's been a, 
experience for sure. What was a, a, a notable mistake maybe in the, in the early days? I think that, uh, you know, uh, not playing with temperature, like like one year, the first year we kind of, we fermented, started fermenting Chardonnay in a cold cellar and, and maybe that was one mistake because it started getting a, started getting a little moldy. So you're like, okay, that's interesting. So why is that? So then you took it out, put it in the sun, and it started fermenting, and it was fine. So now you know he fermented. And you know, the first time he made Chardonnay was only 09. Um, and without any you know, added yeast in the, in the winery, which was, had never had Chardonnay before. Um, so you know, there's you know, many mistakes. In, you know, first vintage, you buy two fancy, expensive new barrels. And he put the juice in there, and like, oh my God, this wine tastes like wood chips. But, you know, it's, it's a mistake. And, you know, just, I mean, there's so many. Too much whole cluster, or too, much, too many punch downs. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything we did was, uh, we, we learned from all the mistakes we did. Uh, but uh, but as, as the core of what we wanted is always, is always, uh, you know, been the same. I'll never forget in 2015 here in Oregon, and it was that that warm year, and and we picked the grapes and did whole cluster, and then we were, we don't do any punch downs. And the first tank we pressed, it was like rosé. You're like, what the hell? Why does the wine taste like? Why does it taste so good? It's rosé. And you realize that you know it got hot. The the, the you know because I never experienced. And you know the, the the plants are shut down, and 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 you know we didn't extract enough early on, and in the end it kind of we caught on to the whole thing and started punching down early, but the first tank was like, yeah. So they are all lessons we learn now in warm vintages what you have to do, and you know it's um, yeah it's it's and we don't you know we don't we make one we don't control temperature we don't. We don't chill it or heat it, it just goes on its own. So, uh, yeah, so many, so many mistakes. <laughs> Good ones. Tell me about meeting Sashi and about uh, deciding on, on partnering with him. Yes, yeah, so I met him and he came to uh, show me his wine and, and, you know, it was, the friendship started by just Hanging out, drinking wine, drinking. You know, he we love the same, same wines. He loves old, old wines, and and at that time when I met him, our access to old wine was easy because you know I was working in restaurants. You could, and he always like loved drinking old wines, and that's how I started. And and you know we said you know, let's let's do something together. But I said no, we're gonna make something in a very classic way. You know, I'm whatever wines we make, it's. It's got to be classic. I, you know, it can't be the big, juicy, ripe style because that's just not. It's just not my palate, and not that I want to drink my own wine all the time. But you have to stand behind. And and he he said, yeah, that's 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 exactly what I want, and that's how. I think that's how uh, that's how he planted Domaine de la Côte, and and even now in. Um, the way the wines are structured, and you know, now we have a, a team of people who we work with, and you know, it's it's the same ideas. It's like if you if you if you uh, taste a 
2014 Seven Springs La Source and a 2021 Seven Springs La Source, they won't be that off. They'll be very similar. Same thing with, you know, maybe 2013, Duende La Cote versus 21. It's not that off. Maybe, we ch maybe we've changed the elevage a little bit. Maybe we, the extraction is slightly more or less depending on the vintage, but it's the same model. And that's something which I think that we came upon very early. And it wasn't like we didn't want to change it every year. We didn't want to like, it's about like what, try to make the wine as naturally and organically from the vineyard and let it kind of be that. And let it be like that for, for the way it is. It's not, it's not. And I think that's something uh, we speak about today and we taste, you know, young wines in barrel or villages we had we tried a few old villages uh, two months ago and and just tasting the wines and kind of like oh yeah we did this and if you hadn't done that it would have been like this or we should have done this and because you know you, you always you can find that one mistake you made or you know oh, it was like a week too late or that barrel we picked wasn't great or we racked it too late or the case maybe and and yeah, and, and you know, he, he's also from a cooking background, so it's, it's, always, it's always good because um, it's very tactile, you know, about wine, how we make it, we'll taste the tank and decide what the next day's procedure is going to be. And the same thing in, in, uh, in after you, you know, it's very like everything tastes first. Yeah. Have you made a perfect wine yet? Well, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Not yet. Before um, Evening Land and Seven Springs became part of, became uh, on your horizon, tell me what your impressions were of Oregon and the, and the wines here. Oh, I've, I was lucky to, um, uh, to be connected to Oregon early on because uh, I remember at Rubicon, Larry had a whole vertical of you know, all the vintage of Beaufrere. Uh, he was, you know, and Ponzi was like all in the menu and, and uh, Irie. And so we had a chance to taste a lot of wines uh, together. And, and you, know, the re you know, the reference point of Pinot Noir was always up. Oh, was Burgundy and then there's Oregon, you know, because the similarities were always, you know, California took a while to kind of get a handful of producers, old producers like Calera and John Johansson and Mount Eden and, and others. But the, the reference point was always, uh, and, and you know, Larry um, you know, lived in Seattle a long time, so he, he, knew, uh, he knew the region really well. And I came here first time in 97. Yeah, so I met a few producers when I came here, and and uh, so I've, you know, I've, i before I even ever came for Seven Springs, I'd visited several times, and and uh, yeah, I was always uh, intrigued with what's happening here. So it's pretty crazy what it is now. It's like what it was in '97 and what it is today. It's pretty extraordinary. 
I'm curious about initial impressions uh, of Seven Springs and what, what prompted you to decide that that was something you wanted to work with. So when I made the you know, 07 and 08 there, um, and in 07 I didn't love the whole cluster expression, in 08 I did. And um, there were a lot of discussions between Dominique Lafont, who's, who does not like whole cluster, and, and there was always a back and forth, oh, I don't know. So there was, you, know, you could see that there was like something, you know, also the vintage is 07, 08. 07 just kept raining and 08 was, it was beautiful. Um, and and the and the wines were you know, the biggest difference I saw was like in California the vintage differences were much less, and in Oregon there was much more extreme. There was you know being in this in this uh, climate of uh, either too wet, too cold, or warm depending on vintage. And uh, I was just like, wow, this is like one thing we know that we're going to make uniquely different wines every year and something we can't always do in California because it's the summer is always dry it's cool there's of course there's there's some differences but and and also you know working with a historic vineyard with with some vine age it was uh, yeah it was an opportunity we didn't want to miss you talked about it being a sort of a 10 to 20 year project to get it where you wanted it to be, how did how has that unfolded so far? Yeah, so this is, uh, I guess, year ten now, and uh, yeah, I, th I think this we might be in a second step now because the vineyard is pretty much mapped out, pretty much replanted, or in the process, um, you know, and. You know, it's always uh, kind of gut-wrenching to remove old vines, but uh, you know that that you're replacing it with good genetics for, for the next. So I think right now we are like in year 10, maybe phase two of, of what the vineyard would be. In another 10 years, we'll, you know, incorporate all the vines, which will be then 10 to 15 years old into the main wine. and. And, uh, you know, some of the first plantings now are, you know, more than 20 years old already. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a puzzle, which, you know, you have to fill in, make sure that, and you really, once you plant a vineyard, you want to, you know, keep it around for 50 or 100 years if you can. That's the whole goal. I think we have amazing, uh, Jessica Cortell with us, so she's like, you know, forward thinking and really progressive and an amazing farmer. So all those things definitely kind of help uh, make sure that we plant the right right selection of rootstock, the right uh, selection of, of, of the grapes, yeah. And how have the wines there progressed since you've been working with them? How are the, how are the Evening Wine Vineyard Seven Springs wines? I think they are pretty consistent to vintage you know I think I think the stylistically uh, they've been pretty consistent from 14 till um, till now um, and you know I, I think we haven't none of the vintages are fully mature yet so it's good to see that it's you know even 
even though we make the wine in, in, a, in a kind of a softer touch now than the past maybe. And, you know, everything is uh, ambient yeast and just a little sulfur bottling, kind of gentle, you know. And, and I think that uh, the best is yet to come. I think it's, it's still when the upper blocks uh, become older and, and the new plantings and, you know, the, we've planted more Chardonnay adjacent to where the original source and Sumum parcels were. And, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's exciting to see what, uh, what the future has. How do you think your experiences as a psalm and in wine education influenced your winemaking? Uh, I think it's it's just the context of of the wine. You know, like like been lucky to uh, taste a lot of great wines, young and old, and knowing that perhaps we'll never have it again because you know what what we tasted, you know, 10, 20 years ago, a mature bottle of a great vineyard, a great vintage. Uh, it's now, you know, hard to hard to find, or so it's. I think the, you know, when you taste wine, it it it's a part of your memory, and when you taste greatness, it really kind of is like a stamp in your in your mind, and uh, I think that is my education of, of being fortunate at the right place, the right time, because uh, now it's kind of almost irreplaceable to do it again. So the other part, of obviously, of your, of your experience has been in the farming side. So let's talk about how that came to be. Talk about uh, First Vineyard and, and how you decided to do that. Yeah, and that's that's a very new part of my life, and and you know we've always had great uh, farming teams, and uh, you know we knew the fundamentals of I know the fundamentals of what, but when the pandemic, uh, probably half into the pandemic in twenty, I decided to uh, rent this uh, this property in Cambria to farm 11 acres by myself and uh, and moved there and and yeah it was it's it's still it's three years into it it's it's a learning experience it's uh, you know uh, big uh, uh, huge influences and inspirations right are all from Oregon my you know Nate Reddy a dear friend and Dan Rinky, who I talk to a lot, and Mimi Castillo, so, you know, talk to them, and Jason Jardine and Sonoma, and and uh, really kind of, uh, kind of staying true to the principles of regenerative farming, uh, you know, uh, trying to, uh, you know, keep the microbiome off the place and do, and you know it's something I've never done before, so it was incorporating animals and and yeah, fifteen varieties planted there, and and you know it's a it's also a low budget operation, so I don't have all the fancy tools, so all done by hand, and 
So it's a, it's 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 a it's an experience. It's it's great. It's kind of helped me put perspective of you know um, you know how how to how to dance with Mother Nature because you know we take it for granted. Oh yeah, it's going to be bud break and flowering and it's all good. No, it's like it's every year is completely a new set of challenges. So it's been it's been an amazing amazing experience. When you decided to, to jump in and, and do that, um, what what prompted you to go w with regenerative farming and, and bringing animals in and, and going that route? Uh, again, back to during the pandemic, I was uh, just watching the news and seeing the, along with the climate chaos and everything else around us, how, uh, you know, different pollution versus carbon footprint, sequestering carbon and all these things. I was like, you know, looking at biodynamic, organic, and the decision to go the regenerative route was just to kind of, you know, sequester the carbon and kind of having a low impact life. Uh, I think my past life was not low impact, it was, and I used to fly 200,000 miles a year and, and you know, uh, just, it was different, you know. I, and, I, and I felt it, I felt that I was uh, part of the problem for, for what's happening around us. And uh, so now we try to, I try to live in, in a way that I can, uh, you know, live more simply and stay in one place and I still travel but not like all the time in the winter months most mostly and uh, but it's 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 something important to kind of also talk because I think I think that um, we talk about farming but we don't uh, spell it out um, and I think that the that the consumer needs to know, because the only way you can talk about, uh, you know, carbon and talk about uh, about the effects of of uh, of what we do with, you know, the bottles we buy, uh, the tractors we use, uh, what we spray, um, you know, those those are some things which. We talk about to consumers, and consumers can maybe take points of it and kind of incorporate it in their own lives. You know, it's like, you know, you don't need to have a big, heavy, lipped bottle to make a better wine. Then you can buy a bottle that's made in uh, right here in, in in the United States, if not in California or Oregon, and uh, things like that. You know, recycling and the boxes we use, and you know, everything. Everything has to play a part in in all of us trying to, I want to say, slow down the climate chaos. I don't know if we can stop it at this point, um, but we shouldn't add to it uh, and try to kind of be more mindful of, of, of the consequences of, of things we uh, eat, things, what we wear, how we live our life. So, um, all this led to that. Mm -hmm. Just the, you know, we all would, I guess, 
in, in a different state when we were experiencing that 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 time uh, during the pandemic and I extracted that and kind of uh, I was guilty <laughs> I found myself guilty so uh, hence this change it's a pretty drastic shift how have you enjoyed it so far oh, I love it it's, it's great it's 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 great because I spend most of my time without a phone. <laughs> I have no phone service, internet most of the, most of the day, uh, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's been amazing. It's it's been grounding. It's been you know just been incredible. Yeah. What do you hope? You're a few years into it. What are you hoping long term with the project? What are your kind of hopes, hopes and dreams for it? Uh, hopes and dreams are that. You know, we convince the whole planet to think like that, you know. It's hard with a, with a small place where we are in the corner of the world. Uh, you know, Mimi's been saying it for so many years, and I think, I think it's just a conversation we have to keep repeating. Because um, the way agriculture has been done for the last, since World War II, has been pretty standard. And, and I know that not everyone's on board with uh, regenerative farming, um, but it's, it's one of the ways, if not the only way, to slow down uh, what we're losing, the bank under the ground. And, you know, it's great to be here in Oregon and see so many people planting trees everywhere. I know that for, there was, for many years there was trees taken out and now you see that there's a lot of trees being planted. Uh, I mean, I just heard today, I couldn't believe that it's not illegal to cut an Oregon oak because Oregon oak is rare. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not illegal. In California, you can't. It's, it's illegal. They will, they will not do good things if you take out an old, old oak tree. So, you know, it's, it's so that, things like that. Things like do more, keep this place, you know, Leave it better than it than you got it, and and, and that's that's the goal, you know. And, and talk about it. I think that that's important to talk about. You know. So you talk about the idea of sort of zero zero farming, right? Not, not nothing in, nothing out. Yeah, I mean, we all have to put something in. Sure. But yeah, the whole idea is not is to make the soil healthier and make the plant stronger. That's, that's the goal to have, in, in case of vines, to have a fungal dominant uh, soil structure, not a bacteria dominant structure. In actual different things have to, but, but, the, but the goal there is to, you know, if I can get somewhere between two to one to five to one of fungal bacteria ratio on the soil, I want, with, with Mother Nature, I want, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's 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 to you know we haven't. I took the property over uh, in '17, and you know been measuring measuring that uh, every year. Uh, the land has never been tilled. Um, the family homestead then 1851. So you know it's a you know not to bring animals back in there, and it's it's kind of it's kind of you know. It's a very small little thing, but I think, I think if we can kind of make that in scale, I think 
for agriculture as a whole. Uh, wine is just a platform we can talk on. It's, I don't think it's, you know, if, if I grew potatoes, no one listened to me, you know. If you make, if you make wine, they'll maybe listen to you, so. So along the way, I know you've you've uh, you've done some writing as well. Tell me about the idea to to, to produce a book and uh, and sort of the process and outcome. Yeah, two very different books. The first book, Secret Sommelier, me and Jordan wrote. That was like I think that came out in 2010 or 11, maybe, and and that was just like it was the explosion of sommeliers around the same time. And I was waiting, someone's gonna write a book eventually, and no one did, and so me and Jordan wrote the book. It didn't take us a whole lot, a year to write it, and it was out in two years, but it was, it was more to kind of talk about, you know, what sommeliers do, and I think now it's, the book is uh, maybe not as important because there's so many sommeliers out there, but it was important to kind of write about it. The second book was something me and Jordan had spoken about just after he published the first book, that that what if you have a book that that points out the classic wines of we said world, but it was too big a topic to focus on Europe, of you know how you relate the taste to the place. And that took a lot more research. It was five years of research, and then again a year year and change of writing. Uh, that yeah, it was it was time consuming and. Only traveling in the winter months, because uh, you know we had to be for the harvest and the growing season. So it was, it was, it was a that book was a lot of work compared to the first one, and it was great. No, it was great to share experiences and walk vineyards. We walked pretty much every great vineyard in Europe uh, and meet people and talk to them about the place, the soil, and yeah. What were the most important takeaways for you? Uh, how important uh, the, the impact of the human who is uh, growing uh, and making the wine. It was, you know, it was, it was as much as we can say, oh yeah, this, this is the best soil possible, limestone or granite or basalt or quartz, those are very important aspects, but without a human uh, intervention, you cannot translate. So we always, the thing I learned the most was, what's a bottle of wine? The expression of the bottle of wine is a combination of the place, the plant material, how it come there, and then the person who farmed and made it. Because e either one of them on their own doesn't make the wine. And then in that, if you, you know, you could divide them up into three or sometimes the person making it or growing it is more important or more impactful or sometimes the soil is more impactful and some, sometimes the genetic material is more impactful. Um, you mentioned earlier, obviously, that you had a, a number of mentors in, in all, all of your, all, all the different uh, paths you've walked. Tell me about sort of paying that forward. How has mentorship uh, from you from you gone, and who, what are some of the things you're sort of proudest of in that regard? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the most important thing, because it's a privilege to um, 
pay it forward because you know, not everyone wants to listen to everybody. So, uh, which is which is fine. But it's I think that if someone ever comes to me and says I want to learn or I want to spend a day a week, always always welcome to you know because um, it's it's so important because I think that no one should just listen to one thing or one person. Uh, you should have different uh, ideas and then kind of use your own judgment to kind of uh, make your own mind of exactly what you want to do. So I was fortunate to meet many people and, and articulate the same idea of what I want to say really from what I heard from other people. Because uh, so for me, it's, uh, I, I, I try to you know, welcome everybody who wants to come and, and spend time and visit and stay and learn, because, yeah. On the sommelier side specifically, obviously you've, you've had a pretty big influence. Are there uh, certain programs or, or people that you're sort of proudest of that have sort of come, come in your wake? Oh, so many. It's, it's uh, no, it's, 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 uh, it's an amazing, you know, I could I could name so many people who who have uh, who have come and kind of worked with me, or just you know I I don't I don't spend time at restaurants anymore, so I kind of people people still email me, say, oh yeah, can you, can I come and work with you? I'm like, I work in a farm. You want to come and work in a farm? I, unfortunately, I I can't give you a you know I can't teach you what some of you stuff because I'm not a restaurant. Uh, but yeah, no, so many you know Eric Railsback who's uh, Who's based in California, and Brian McClintock, and Mark Bright, and Emily Wines? It's, it's endless. So many people who've who've uh, either you know, succeeded in, in becoming master of some ways, or master of wine, or or business people. You know, it's 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 uh, it's really uh, it's amazing that that as it keeps growing. You know. Like, People still still kind of evolve, and as, yeah, I tell them. You know, I tell them. I said, don't stop learning, just because you're successful in this. Just you know, stay thirsty, always. Talked earlier about your sort of early impressions of, of Oregon and the wine industry here, and obviously you, you alluded to the, some changes. So, what are the what are the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon in your time, uh, sort of being aware of it? And what does the Oregon wine industry look like to you now? Um, yeah, well, you know, it it, it kind of uh, it's amazing to see so many so many new plantings and and you know I think the quality of the viticulture is is. Is at a different level now than it maybe was 20 years ago, uh, and I think that there's more diversity in every aspect of 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 the wine business, the people, the varieties. Because I know the Pinot Noir is is always been the uh, the main variety, but you know you see there's plantings happening more east, more west. Uh, what's happening in Hood River? You know, there's there's it's kind of you know it's happening down in uh, in you know Umpqua and around Ashland and stuff. It's you know it's it's I think the building identity of Oregon as a, as a whole is I think is the brightest ever been. It's you know you, you taste a great 
you know, outside of Pinot, Pinot Noir, we know already what's, what's happening, but it's amazing to, you know, see. I think there's still more, more going to happen. I think there'll, there'll be more people who are going to, who are going to experiment with other varieties, because now with uh, the weather patterns changing, you know, you can, you can plant some other things in uh, places that you probably couldn't do it. 20 years ago, so I think there's maybe another mini ripple happening for the next five, 10 years of plantings. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's exciting because, you know, it's, uh, yeah, as, as you expand uh, the diversity of, of Oregon, of, it's, you know, the varieties have to, you know, you can't have Pinot everywhere. What do you see coming next for the industry? What's what's it going to look like, say, ten years from now? I think you know there'll be again other varieties. You know, we already seen some Jura varieties out there. I think maybe more of that. Uh, you know, uh, some some kind of Spanish Portuguese varieties. You've seen some. You know, uh, seen some in Hood River and the Gorge around there, and and. Uh, yeah, just kind of find pockets of people. And, you know, it has to be, you know, the people who also take charge and do it. It's not just what the market wants. It's like somebody wants to kind of, you know, make different wines. And and with the, the knowledge of viticulture and, 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 and the expertise, which is at a high level, you have, you know, Oregon is maybe the only, you, know, you never see it in California, see the, the camaraderie and the and the friendship and you know the OPC, IPNC, all these things. You know, you see so much of uh, you know learning and teaching uh, among among the producers. That's something quite special, quite unique in in wine regions. You would almost never find that in most parts of Europe. <laughs> so it's it's pretty cool to to see that here, and that's always been something in. Uh, that de that defines Oregon mm -hmm. and makes it very uniquely different than other wine regions. So obviously you've got a lot going on, but uh, what, what's what's next for you? What's on your horizon that you're excited about, either either in wine or, or beyond? No, this is it. I, you know, I'm I'm just I'm excited to learn more and and uh, yeah, it's no, there's nothing. I, I love to see the, the progress happening uh, on, the, on the west coast of, uh, of the U.S., and yeah, it's, it's exciting. What are you proudest of? What makes you, what, are you, what is your biggest accomplishment so far? <laughs> uh, I don't know, my mom might have a different idea, but I, I don't know, I just, uh, yeah, to you know, be a good person and help as many people as possible, and learn and teach and repeat. That's it. Last question for you: What is the most unreal wine you've had? Unreal wine I've had. Yeah, I uh, was fortunate to uh, to have to serve and then taste and drink 
a bottle of Vengeon from 1774. And uh, it came from a very famous seller and, and a friend of mine had, and yeah, so, and we had it, and the group of people we had it was pretty amazing. It was in Burgundy with probably five of the best winemakers and, and it was just a, yeah. The whole setting of the wine was like, to have a wine from, and it was great, so. It's certainly unreal, That's, that's yeah. that, that qualifies for sure. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have anything that we didn't cover here today that oh, you'd you like cover to cover? a lot, more than, <laughs> no, it's really good. You, you, many questions were not uh, the usual questions. So no, it's good. good, I think you. Good. I think I had to think about all the things. I'm like, I haven't thought of these things in a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's the curse of the oral history interview. So no, thank, no, no, thank no, 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 it's good. No, it's good. It's, it's, it's good. It's, it's, uh, I was just thinking, I was like, you know, a friend of mine said, I'm going to write you a, I'm going to write you a memoir. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to put in my memoir. It's like expose of, no, it's someday. It's, Raj uncovered, something like that. You know, it's, it's, everything is open. It's, there could be maybe two or three secrets, which, will one day come out, but um, it's not secrets, it's just stuff you can't talk about because you're afraid of your life, you know? <laughs> Other than that, everything is, <laughs> I'm not afraid of speaking about things, but yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your no, time, for no, making, making you. time for us on this trip, and we appreciate it. And again, no, thank you no. to the folks here at Portland Wine Company, to Matt and Angie for letting us use their space tonight. We appreciate that as well. Go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.